0: Genesis chapter 4, where are we up to in our story? Uh, We have a little bit of context. Uh, First, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, demonstrating such power and such sovereignty, creating simply by speaking, forming the earth, filling the earth and the universe In Genesis 2, of course, we zoomed in on that last act of creation, Uh, humanity made in God's image. Everything up to that point, of course, had been good, 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 this time with man and woman made in the image of God. It's very good. It's the cherry on top. And in the garden, as we saw in Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve walked with God, yet in Genesis 3, we have this overwhelming shadow that is known uh, proverbially in Christianity as the fall. The fall. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience. And though in Genesis 3 God preaches a message of hope that the seed of the women would come and would crush sin, Though that seed, that person is coming further down the line, there are still consequences to their sin. There are physical consequences. Toil, pain, death enters in. There are relational difficulties, friction within humanity. And there are spiritual consequences. Eviction from the garden. Alienation from God. It's a pretty terrible, depressing scene. So then we come to Genesis 4. And with Genesis 1 to 3 in mind, Genesis 3 in particular, two huge questions are hanging over everything that follows. Two huge questions are hanging over the rest of the Bible, really. One is full of hope, the other is full of dread. The first question is the hope-filled question, and it's it's this. Is the promised one, the serpent-crushing saviour, going to be next in line? Is he going to be on this page of the story? The dread-filled question is, how will humankind fare outside the garden and away from God's presence? What we see in this section between Genesis 4 verse 1 and the end of chapter 5 is a very firm and abrupt and pretty devastating no to both of those. So we're going to look at two things tonight in this passage, verses 1 to 8, the corruptive nature of sin, and verses 9 to 16 and point to the unerring judgment of God. There are few passages which give us such a view of the anatomy of sin and its horrific effects as this one. So first of all the corruptive nature of sin verses 1 to 8. Now of course sin, what is sin? How would you define it? Often we tend to think of it as something that we do, but really it's any desire, thought, or action that comes from a heart that doesn't love and adore and treasure God above all things. So sin, according to the Bible's definition, is not just something that you do. It's fundamentally about where you place your love. It's about whom you love. And sin is the deepest, strongest, and most pervasive problem in the human race. People think that all sorts of things are problematic in our world. But Paul spells out for us in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. It is, sin's problem is pervasive. It's spread to absolutely everyone. And in fact, the book of Romans is this just fantastic opening up this exposé on sin and its effects. Because Paul, having spelled out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, goes on in the following chapters to give us image after image of sin's power over us. Like in chapter 5, he speaks of it reigning, sin reigning like a king in death. Or in chapter 6, like a Lord holding dominion. Or later in chapter 6, Uh, enslaving like a slave master to whom we as people who think we're free are actually sold. In chapter 7 he talks about it as a force that produces other sins, a power that seizes and kills, Uh, as a hostile occupying tenant who dwells in us and a taskmaster that takes us captive so that we don't do what we want to do. And follow these insatiable desires. All of that is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 4. And I don't know what you think sin is. Or what you think about it. What you think about some of the sins that we have committed even in these past hours. Are we dismissive of it? Do we blame shift when we think about the reasons why we sin? It's not my fault. It's our fault. Do we downplay it? I don't think Genesis 4 permits that. What we see here in this scene, of course, is Cain and Abel. I mean, it all started off so promising, of course, didn't it? In verses 1 and 2, you've got uh, Adam and Eve... They're having kids. They're starting to do the things that we're encouraged to do, fill the earth, subdue it. Indeed, you see, when Cain and Abel come along, it delights Eve. Maybe she's thinking, this is a serpent-crushing saviour. Maybe. She had to hope. Yet Cain and Abel serve in their respective dominions over agriculture and in farming, looking after sheep. Starting to do the kind of things that actually God set humankind to do. But here we see such bad signs in verses 3 to 5. Which effectively show us this heartless worship of Cain. Here we find uh, two men making two offerings. And one was accepted and one was not. Now, the big question is why, and there's lots of conjecture over this, lots of people have tried to pitch in with this. Ultimately, I want to argue tonight that it's because Cain's worship was fundamentally all about him. It was proud, it was self-centered, it was not God-directed and grateful. He didn't do it out of any desire or acknowledgement of his need for atonement or for blessing, but he did it. Out of reward. He's the first Pharisee. He's going through the religious motions with no heart in it. We see that from just the way the passage describes it. Cain and Abel both make the offering, Cain and Abel both bring the produce of their respective work, field and farm. Now, some suggest that God didn't accept Cain's offering because it wasn't a blood offering. I think there's something in that. God has certainly set the scene for that in Genesis chapter 3, sacrificing the animal, of course, that providing that atonement cover, if you like, for the shame of Adam and Eve. But the rejection of Cain's offering comes down to the fact that, well, two verses explain exactly what's going on. The first is that it's deficient. When you look at verse three with me. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit to the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face downcast. What do we see in the language that's used here? Cain's offering was half-hearted at best not very sacrificial to say the least he brought some of the produce but when you look at abel's offering the description of what he brings is intensified the best bits of the best animals were offering in other words were offered in other words this was a costly sacrifice here is the sacrifice of a guy who recognizes his indebtedness to god his gratitude for his sovereign provision But there is another verse in the Bible which explains and gives more insight into what was happening in this particular scenario. And this is very, very useful for us, brothers and sisters, as a means of understanding how we, un- how we interpret the Bible. And how- it's how the New Testament makes use of the Old Testament text. Now, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and you'll read this. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks as though, even though he is dead. So yes, there was some disparity between the quality of the offering, some, and the best of the best bits being offered. But Cain's was ultimately a careless sacrifice offered without true faith whereas Abel's was offered in faith." What is it that makes a person go through such religious motions? To offer a sacrifice, but be completely heartless and unfeeling in the process? Well, I mean, this is what Cain is doing. He seems to be doing the right things, but he's ultimately doing this for himself. And one of the ways that we know that is because you can see the disappointment on his face that he's the one who's rejected. His sacrifice is not accepted. When it's all about you and you don't get your way, it hurts more than anything. Because before you hear about it in the Lord's indictment, you see it in his face. His face is downcast, his heart is raging. And we shouldn't expect anything less, because anger in itself is a physical emotion. It affects the whole body. And Cain is fizzing, not angry with himself. He is not grieving over his own heartless worship. There's not sorrow, there's not remorse in this. No, he's angry at God and angry with his brother. And so we see the corruptive nature of sin even in that seemingly good act of Cain's heartless, faithless offering. How sad. One generation on from Adam and Eve. Sin is starting to take root. It's not that Abel was perfect or else he would need, have no need of a sacrifice. No, sin is pervasive and we see it in Cain. We not only see it in his heartless worship, we see it in his very obvious rejection of God's word in verses six to eight. I mean, I wonder if you hear this when we're talking to people about Jesus. So many people have this view of God as some kind of capricious, emotionally unstable God dishing out impatient judgment. Take them to Genesis four. Show them how obnoxious, And ungrateful Cain is. And show them how loving and patient and gracious and merciful God is. He is glorious in this passage. God's not rash in Genesis 4. He's a counselor. Not in the political sense. In the pastoral sense. He's loving Cain in spite of his formal empty worship. Look with me at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now notice he doesn't just burst in with finger-wagging indictments. He asks him a question. Now, one thing must be clear in our heads. If God is asking you a question, it's not that he doesn't have the information, right? He knows all things. Knows a word before it's even on our tongues. But he's asking the question for our benefit. That's what he's doing with Cain. He is being pastoral here. He is inviting Cain to explore his own anger. Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? It's obvious to everyone. What's going on in your heart? It's an invitation to talk. Self-assess, Cain. What's going on deep inside that heart? Now, we can do the same because God has given us his words... He doesn't speak to us directly as he did to Cain, but he has given us his word. He has, in fact, given us his, uh, uh, he's given each of us a conscience. He's given us his people. He's given us church leaders, church families, to speak into our lives words of loving admonishment and counsel. And for that to be a regular and a routine, formative shaping of our Christian walk. We ought to encourage one another to explore why we are the way we are when sin manifests and shows itself in us. Even with our anger, what pushes your buttons? What causes you to get upset? Explore what's going on in your thinking. What are you thinking in those moments? What are you feeling in those moments? What is this anger doing to your body? Why are you going red? Why are your hands tightening? But all those physical features are, of course, encouraging you to think, to stop and think about what's going on in your heart. What are you desiring? What do you really want? that you're not getting, because that's what anger is. Anger is when I say, something's not right, and I'm not happy. Why? And is that just or not? Is it right or is it fundamentally wrong? Sneaky hint. Most of the time, it's really wrong. But God does this with Cain. Ask the pastoral question, and with those questions come the reminder of individual choice, and that for Cain actually he's got to choose wisely because there are consequences to this. There are consequences to what he chooses. He has two paths, but in amongst it there are reminders of grace, as verse 7 says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, what is God saying to him? If you do what is right, will will you not be accepted? He's basically inviting him to see, look, this does not have to be the way it is. You have this choice set before you. Do what's right. What is the right thing? Is it go back and do the offering again? This time do it properly with faith. I don't think it is that. What do you think is the right thing when God convicts you of the wrong thing you have done? It's repentance, right? He's looking for godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Do what's right. Repent and you'll be accepted. The Hebrew in there is like a wordplay. Do what's right and you will be facelifted. In other words, do you see what God is saying? There is a way that will lead not to anger and sorrow and frustration, but to joy and delight in me, and it's repentance. It's not brooding over the thing that's happened and being so self-righteous about it that you're unwilling to let it go, unwilling to step into God's humble, welcoming grace and just say, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. There's an unwillingness to do that. The reward for it is joy. And God offers the same to us. In 1 John 1 verse 9, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come near to God and He'll come near to you. Says James 4. That's the gracious offer that comes in this verse, but don't forget the gracious warning, and it is a grace to give a warning. God says with this picture of uh, sin crouching, he, he pictures for us in our minds, and for Cain in his, of a predator. Now, Eve knows all about predators, and I'm pretty sure... She told Cain and Abel all about that in Genesis 3. But sin is like a predator. And predators are deadly. That's why they're called predators, right? Now, the worst thing that you can do if sin is like a predator is to toy with it and play with it and treat it in an unguarded way or treat it lightly. You will end up like Daniel Brandon. He found out last month that predators are deadly. He lived down south, he loved keeping dangerous pets, he had everything from poisonous spiders to killer snakes, like tiny. His African rock python, seven meters tall, tall? Long, it was a very clever snake, weighed more than me, it's a beast of a snake. He kept it. His friends commenting on BBC News said that if you trawled through his Facebook wall, there was not a picture where he wasn't posing, mostly with this snake, with Tiny, or with some other dangerous predator. You get the fact that since he was on BBC News, he didn't win pet of the year. Sadly, he was strangled to death by his snake it's a strong image. Sin is not something to be toyed with. It's not something to muck about with. Genesis 4, and particularly this warning from God here, tells us it's predatorial. It's deadly. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It crouches at your door, and it desires to have you, to master you. And here we start to see just this pervasive impact of the fall. I mean, for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, it was different. They were seduced by someone else's enticements. But look at what the fall has brought. It's inside Cain. It's in every one of Adam's children. It's in every one of us, and it's deadly. But we don't think of it that way. I was reflecting on this this week. There are plenty of times this past week when I've not thought about sin that way. I've been too, far too hospitable with it. Come in, sin. You know, there's no one else here. It's absolutely foolish to muck around with it. I mean, when was the last time we looked our sin in the mirror and came away broken? How often does the gravity of our sin and its betrayal grip our hearts and bring us to sorrow? It is so gracious of God to warn us of the dangers of sin as he warned Cain about his anger and his selfishness. We see it again and again in the scriptures. If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's in danger of the fires of hell. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So how should we respond to God's word? Shall we follow as the New Testament encourages discourages the way of Cain. Let's not follow the way of Cain. Here's why, verse 8. Now Cain, straight after God has spoken to him, get this. Straight after the Lord has spoken directly to this guy and gave him a very blunt and obvious warning. There are great dangers here. What do we read next? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel. And killed him. Cain completely ignores God's warning. And in a premeditated act. Commits the first murder. 1 John 3 verse 12 says. Do not be like Cain. Who belonged to the evil one. And murdered his brother. Why? What reason does John give? Because his own actions were evil. While his brothers were righteous. Now we might well say. Well you know what? I agree. That's terrible. Cain's crazy. I would never murder someone. But Jesus says to us, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. For they have murdered that person in their heart." see how sin is pervasive and affects us all. The pervasive corruptive nature of sin. That's what we see in point one. Now given the reality of God's ongoing rule and the overt rejection of his word there can be no mistake in what we find next in verses 9 to 16. The unerring judgment of God. The unerring judgment of God. Now one thing is certain for sinners all of us will be called to account. Cain was That's what we find in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now look at how unfeelingly balshy sin makes us. Cain basically shrugs. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, You could read that in the original language as if to say, am I the shepherd's shepherd? It's like Cain's trying to be witty in that moment when he's called to account. He is unfeeling in relation to his sin. Zero remorse. I don't know, what's this got to do with me? Well, verse 10 shows us that God won't shrug it off. He doesn't shrug off sin. Even if humankind does not take sin seriously, he, according to his justice and his goodness and his holiness, does. What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground injustice does that injustice cries out to God all the time he's moved by it not just out of love for those who are trampled and killed but out of a regard for his own sovereignty murder is an act of hatred towards God because only he has the, the right to give life and take it away and even though we see interestingly in this entire passage Abel doesn't utter a word there's, not even a, there's no speech marks for Abel And yet we are left in no doubt in verses 1 to 16. In this whole event that his voice cries the loudest. Through his blood. His blood does all the talking. And Cain's judgment, though he doesn't acknowledge his sin in himself, is swift and all-encompassing. And this is what we see in verses 10 to 15 that sinners will fundamentally suffer the consequences of sin. They are called to account. We all are. We suffer the consequences of sin. No one gets away with it. We see in verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, Oh, well, sorry, verse 11, now you're under a curse and driven from the ground. So here are the specifics of this curse, this punishment. From the ground which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So Cain's job, his livelihood, his working life is now unproductive. He's not gonna have a place to dig and to cultivate now. He's ejected from a land. He's going to have to wander. And wanderers, if you're in agriculture, that's a pretty bad mix. You don't have time to stick around to see the stuff you plant grow. And he gets it. He's like, this is horrific. This is gonna be fruitless and unproductive. This is gonna be the toil of toils. But notice that he doesn't actually acknowledge the sentence. He doesn't object to the fact of it either. He just complains about the severity of it. And how bizarre that the murderer, the murderer complains that his life is now at risk. If somebody finds me, they're going to they're kill me. Do you see how obstinate and proud sinful humanity can get? Even though God is speaking graciously into a person's life, Cain has no regard for his sin, no consideration of repentance, because in his heart of hearts, it's all about him. But yet again, even when the unrepentant one complains, look at the grace of God in verse 15. Having complained about his punishment, the Lord replies to Cain, not so, not, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. In other words, it's no one else's job to take your life. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. There's lots of conjecture about what that mark is. No one really knows. Some are saying, oh, it's a tattoo. There's nothing in there. One Jewish commentator actually said it was a dog called Mark, which I thought was hilarious, but it's not that. But Cain had a mark in some way. God was very graciously preserving him. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Is God unjust? No, he is enacting his punishment, and surely... Cain will die and face the ultimate punishment. Why did God let him live then? Why not take his breath away right there and then? Why go that one step further and protect him? Well, I think 2 Peter 3 verse 9 explains for us the nature of God, that he is patient with human beings like Cain, like us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's given him every chance to repent. And God's incredible grace, again, is seen in that protective act. Surely that will win Cain's heart. Surely that will bring about conviction of sin and repentance. No. Verse 16, this is chilling. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. The Bible says, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Away from his presence is eternal hell. That's what Cain chose. He had God speaking to him, offering him grace, admonishment, warning. Why choose? How would you Choose that. That is the power and the pervasiveness of sin. It is a beastly predator, not to be toyed with. It creates acts, it, it's present in all sorts of guises from an act of apparent good, religious worship, to an act of violent aggression, to an act of deviance, uh, defiance, and obstinacy, Cain spurned the love of God. So we wondered at the start, how would humankind fare outside the garden under this curse of sin, This is how we fare. In fact, this is how we all fare. We're all like Cain. We're all guilty of such sin. Ashley talked about what his life was like before he came to know Jesus the insatiable nature of those predatory desires for drugs and the like. Maybe you know something similar. The same desires, the way sin entraps. But this is a picture of the pervasive corruption of sin and the root of every sin, as John Owen has said, is in the human heart. And tonight, we are warned afresh of its dangers and the certainty of judgment. The good news for us, of course, is that Abel's blood is not the only blood that would be spilled in anger and voluminous in its cries Hebrews 12 wonderfully tells us that we, when we trust in Jesus Christ and come with those repentant hearts that God encouraged Cain to have, that when we come, we come to God, yes, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's people who've already said, yes, I see my sin. I'm really sorry about it. Please forgive me and thank you for this great salvation and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that atoning blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out, Justice! Jesus' blood. Can you believe it? Cries out for people like you and me. Not justice. Mercy. Mercy. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You have the ultimate hope of forgiveness within your grasp right now. A clear understanding, I really hope, of how horrible and corrupting sin is and the fact that it's in every single heart. This passage exposes our sinfulness. I am Cain, you are Cain. But Christ's blood was shed to cover over all of our righteousness, wretchedness and cleanses us from sin when we call on his name in repentance and faith. Turning from sin and turning to him. Trust in his blood for forgiveness of sin. Because the judgment that would have been poured on us has been poured on him. There'll be a prayer team down the front and I'll be down here at the side after the service. If you'd like to talk about this, we'd love to talk to you about it. You can ask someone at the connect corner for more information even for a book that opens up in a bit more detail the kind of things I've been talking about tonight we'd be glad to help you out with that for those of us who are believers of course this the mark of the true Christian isn't that of, of course that sin never gets the upper hand it's not that we are our desires are 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 flawlessly Godward all the time. They're not, we know that. That's why we take communion regularly and we'll continue to do that. The mark of the Christian is that at the root of our lives is that we start to live like we're in Eden. We love God above all things and seek with his gracious help to walk in his ways with a new power, the power of his Holy Spirit who lives in us the same Spirit who enables us to confess our sins and to trust in the faithfulness and justice of God to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a news that needs to be pervasive. In our families, with our kids, in this city, In this world, it must spread because sin is pervasive. Would you join with me in a few moments of prayer and quietness? Let's reflect on the goodness of God before we sing his praises again.